Welcome to the Mini of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. Today, uh, we are very happy to host uh, our interview with uh, Professor Michael Stanton. He is uh, a clinical health psychology and assistant professor uh, at California State University's Bay. Uh, his profile is incredibly interesting because uh, he has worked uh, with uh, addiction, in particular uh, food addiction. Uh, he integrates uh, mindfulness uh, with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to treat uh, both uh, mental and physical health problems. Uh, um, Dr. Stanton is also a guest contributor to several Bay Area TV news stations uh, and uh, he generally brings in uh, his psychological expertise to the analysis of current events. And now, for example, he's working on the effects of coronavirus and the relation between coronavirus and stress. So uh, today, uh, I'm very happy and excited to interview uh, Professor Stanton and to understand how his personal life and his research uh, interact together and uh, create uh, these uh, unique uh, expertise. Uh, so uh, I will start uh, with, uh, with, the, with a very personal question and then uh, slowly <laughs> we'll get into the connection between uh, academic uh, scholarly work and personal uh, influences on uh, your academic work. But let's Great. start from something very straightforward. So when do you feel the happiest? When do you, do you think you can reach uh, the highest level of happiness in your life? Huh. So um, I think, interestingly enough, that brings me back to my research, right? Um, I think about stress as being sort of uh, a time when you are not happy, when mm -hmm. you're at ease, um, and that can lead us to act in certain ways that are not the healthiest for us. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what I do my research on. On the other hand, when you're free of stress and you are at peace and your mind is at ease, you sort of just, you can, amend, you can even feel in your brain just the muscles, you know, uh, opening and, and relaxing, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that is just, um, you know, I, I think of that as the physical experience of when I'm the happiest. And that tends to happen when I'm in nature, Mm -hmm. traveling, when I'm uh, speaking different languages, when I'm connect connecting with people, um, when I'm learning something new, you know, um, and uh, yeah. 
What do you mean about speaking different languages? Uh, did you learn uh, how to speak different languages to achieve happiness, uh, or uh, did that happen? <laughs> was a skill of yours, uh, and uh, it turned out uh, to be useful in life? It's such a bummer that I don't speak Italian, because uh, uh. <laughs> maybe, uh, Professor Ferrello, you can help me in, in the future here. Uh, Why but Because <laughs> I would love to speak Italian. But um, I, I think it's, it goes back to connecting with people and that is such an important, so important to me. And so when I speak different languages, it allows me to connect with so many more people. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and, and, and not only that, but the way that we um, use words mm -hmm. differently in different languages is just blows my mind. And it, it, I think it makes, yeah, it sort of makes me realize and empathize with other people um, about how they perceive the world, you know, and, and it helps me perceive the world through their eyes. And, um, and that makes me happy. I saw there is a word in your research that come up, comes up pretty often, which is a behavioral, right? Can you tell us what is behavioral therapy? Uh, if these uh, adjective behavioral has to do with the, your passion of observing people, of uh, connecting with people. Is there any bridge, is there any link with it? So my field, I'm a clinical health psychologist, licensed clinical health psychologist. And so I went to school um, to look at psychology, which is the mind, but then also I study medicine, which is the body. And my research and my training has to do with how are the mind and the body connected? Mm -hmm. How do things that happen in our mind, how are they manifested in our behaviors? And how are um, behaviors that we have that, you know, like, say, sitting home all day or the opposite, going for a run? Mm -hmm. Or, say... Um, an example might be eating well, right? Eating very healthy foods versus eating really unhealthy foods, fatty kind of, you know, unhealthy, but tasty foods. Um, and how do, how do behaviors like that affect our mind? And so that's sort of what the crux of my um, study and my PhD. Um, actually, it's interesting. I'm a clinical psychologist, right? But my my advisor in, in at, uh, for my PhD is actually a medical doctor who's mm -hmm. not, a psych not a psychiatrist. He's just a, he's a medical doctor. So my training is really just exactly half and half, medicine and psychology, mind and body. Mm -hmm. And uh, your focus is uh, on addiction, on uh, food in particular. Why did you get there? Is there a personal connection? Uh, in your path, in your family, that led you to this particular topic in academia? Yeah, so I, I guess, so I guess I would go back to uh, the Harvard Medical School Division on Addiction, where I worked right after I graduated from undergrad. And I think I, I noticed when I was there that we were studying addictions, predominantly alcoholism and gambling addiction, which is a behavioral addiction. And so, and time and time and time again, it came up that we were constantly talking sometimes about the mind and about how the, you know, the mind was affecting people's addictions. And then other times 
how it was the substance itself. Heroin is so addictive that people can't, you know, supposedly, you know, um, resist. Well, what, what got me fascinated and what we kind of became more and more interested in were these behavioral addictions. Um, behavioral addictions like gambling or, or like, um, you know, eating too, too much food, say. And it's interesting because they, these behaviors actually share a lot of similarities with addictions like heroin or cocaine addiction, you know, or cigarette addiction that we're very familiar with that has a drug. And, um, but with behavioral addictions like gambling and obesity, you know, there really isn't um, a drug in the same way, right? But people are still showing the same signs. Um, like there's withdrawal, meaning they have symptoms when they don't get the same amount of satisfaction from whatever they're doing. There's also uh, tolerance where they kind of have to keep um, taking gambling more and more and more to get that same high. And so that became fascinating to me. And I thought that what was interesting was that people weren't really looking at eating as much as they were at cocaine and drugs and you know other types of hard drugs and so um and the thing about eating is that we all eat right we have to eat to survive and so it's kind of a unique type of addiction where we have to eat but then at the same time um sometimes people use it as a coping technique to cope with stress and so that's how that's sort of what got me interested in eating addiction but then also it kind of can show you how it also got me interested in stress as a predictor of that addictive behavior. Is there anything personal? Uh, is there any friend uh, in your life or yeah, your family, that's right. family member that uh, went through something like that and motivated you to choose uh, this addiction rather than others? Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I do have, um, there are members of my family who, um, you know, have had bariatric surgery, which is a type of um, weight loss surgery where they surgically remove part of your stomach because mm -hmm so obese that it's affecting your health and then afterwards i used to work in, in a bariatric surgery clinic i was actually part of the team that treated and decided whether someone was a good candidate for bariatric surgery and so both looking at my family members who went through this and who struggle with this you know addictive eating and my patients um it i've gotten uh, quite a personal experience looking at at this issue and you think in, in having gone through that uh, is more behavioral than physical. So what do you mean by that? So I wouldn't say it's more behavioral than physical. Uh, okay. No, well, I mean, that, but I mean, I, I, it's complicated, basically. <laughs> and that's why I think it's so interesting to study is that, um, you know, there's some evidence that, um, Again, just to go back to what I think is what, I, what interests me about the root of, of the cause of it is that um, stress seems to do strange things to people's behaviors, right? Mm. When people are stressed out, they will do irrational things. Um, there's a great episode of Hidden Brain. Have you ever heard of that podcast? On no. It? It's all about psychology and philosophy and society. Oh. Uh -huh. And um, he he talks about the case of a woman who, when she was stressed out and um, didn't have any money, how she got a credit card and ended up buying like a whole grocery cart full of toilet paper, even though she didn't really have enough, you know, necessarily like food in her house. It was strange because you would seem like, it, it sort of seems like an irrational reaction, but that's sort of what stress does to us. 
it makes us act in certain ways that, um, you know, seem irrational. But for her, you know, focused on how she didn't have enough toilet paper. And she just, now that she had a credit card, she finally had the amount of money that she could, you know, that to, to buy toilet paper. And so she wanted as much of it as possible so that she wouldn't run out again. And that's sort of um, part of one of the, the things that, that, that happens to people who are stressed is that they act in ways that um, oftentimes cause them more problems down the line. And so um, it's been very interesting for me to just study stress and its effect on behavior, including like the addiction to food. Um, and I also, so that's one line of research is um, looking at stress and how it contributes to obesity. And then the other line of research is how stress um, around COVID and in the time we're living in contributes to unhealthy behaviors like not eating as well, lack of exercise, drinking too much alcohol, smoking too much, etc. Do you think, I know that you are a licensed uh, hypnotherapist also. Do you think that that can help, uh, uh, that hypnosis in general can help with uh, addiction behaviors, uh, reducing stress? That's an interesting connection, you know. You talked, we, you asked me what makes me the happiest, and I was saying it's just uh, that thing of ease, right? That kind of peace. And that is exactly what we do when um, we're working on hypnosis. You know, hypnosis, I think it has this aura that it's some sort of magic. Right. What it is, is just making people relaxed and happy so that they are more um, open to changes in their mindset and changes in their behavior. Um, and so that is, hypnosis is, can be very useful for addictions in particular. Um, and I do have a personal story with that too. That's sort of how I got into hypnosis. Please tell us. Yeah, my, my grandmother actually was addicted to cigarettes and when I was a kid, my parents would say, you know, make sure you throw away Graham's cigarettes. You don't want her to be smoking. And so I would throw her cigarettes away. Um, that didn't seem to help. Um, you know, my grand, my grandmother's children, you know, like my parents, my mom would say, you know, you can't do that, mom, you can't smoke, you know, this is not good for your health. Um, and that didn't seem to help. So none of that helped. And what really, um, what did help, which was wild to me is that she went to see a hypno hypnotherapist and the hypnotherapist she had like two sessions with the with with this hypnotherapist and she was cured forever for the rest of her life after smoking for 70 years wow so that sort of seemed amazing to me and i that sort of got me interested in learning about hypnosis is it affordable i mean compared to taking medication or the effects of addiction yeah for sure Thank you. So uh, have you ever been in a place in which you questioned everything about yourself? And if so, how did you get out of there? Because, I mean, we need sometimes to be there, sometimes out. Tell me a little. Since we were talking about languages, mm. one of the, something that comes to mind is traveling. And when you're in a different country and you don't speak the language and you don't know the culture, um, that really has forced me to think, you know, um, think about myself and, and who I am and, and what I, all the things that I've built up as important, you know, um, maybe they aren't so important in another context. So I used to live 
in Senegal in uh, West mm -hmm. Africa. Wow. And I lived there for over a year, almost two years. And it was incredible because things that matter here don't matter there and vice versa. So I think one of the, you know, what, <laughs> I guess one incident that comes to mind is I was at a concert, outdoor concert, and I didn't notice, but my phone got stolen. And, um, you know, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't like the fanciest phone, but it was a nice, you know, a nicer nice phone. And I was crushed, you know, I um, assumed that when I talked to my Senegalese friends about it, that they would feel the same way. So I said, oh, I'm so sad. I lost this phone. I was at this concert. Can you believe it? Can you believe I lost my phone? And they looked at me and they said, Mike, do you still have your family? <laughs> you still have yourself and your health? And I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you're not missing anything. Right. And that just made me realize why, you know, I, I, why am I valuing this stupid phone, right? And we sort of, I would say in, in the West, you know, we tend to do that. We value objects a lot more. And in, whereas in Senegal, mm -hmm. it's not the case. People are much more important. Why would you even think about of course. technology? So questioning yourself in this case was the right thing to do. It was a gaining meaning for your life. Yes. Very right. Can I ask you why Senegal for one year? I mean, you live in California. I mean, uh, yeah, we teach in California, so I know that uh, it's a big uh, jump, Senegal. I lived there twice, actually, once in college and then once after college. Mm. Now, yeah, for about a year and a half. So Senegal, because I spoke French, but mm -hmm. I want to live in France. Um, I like, I mean, I love France, but I had already been there and I wanted something that was going to challenge, challenge me more, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So, and, and also, yeah, just, you know, learning more about the African continent and, you know, West Africa just was really interesting to me. So. And I think it helps also as a, a professor here. I mean, I know that we have many students who are directly from other continents and they might feel in the same way as you were describing before, right? Mm -hmm. uh, meaning, uh, okay, what counts for me every day doesn't count here and vice versa. The system of values I was used to mm -hmm. is completely different. The language yeah. is always ridiculous when I speak because the sound is strange. Yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, that's such a good point. I, I, it's funny, I don't even, I don't think about that enough. You know, the fact that our students are definitely experiencing that all the time. Um, and even when they've been here for generations, you know, they still have grandparents in their house or parents who don't speak the language. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and I'm sure that's a really tough experience where they're constantly thinking about themselves in a different context, you know. Thank you so much. Thanks. Let's move to a next question. Uh, how do you think people view you? And how do you view yourself instead? I think it's tough to, so that, that's a tough question because I think that if you get too tied up in what people view of you, you won't be able to 
effectively be yourself. <laughs> I think, I mean, I, to a certain extent, you need to see, you know, think about how other people are viewing you. Um, because you obviously don't want to make a big faux pas. You don't want to make a big mistake in your, you know, in the way you're in your department or your culture. But if you think too hard about that, then you're not being authentic, right? You're, I don't know, this, I would, this is a great question for like yourself. Exactly. Yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> what is authenticity? Yeah. You know? Hey, what do you think being authentic means? What is uh, authenticity for you, being uh, your authentic mic? Wow, it's so interesting. Um, I think the older I get, the more I think that being authentic requires you to, to not think too hard about, like you said, what other people are thinking or about what you're... I read an interesting book called The Art of Is, mm -hmm. and it's about improvisation and about how you know, we can learn um, so much about the authentic experience from improvisation in art, improvisation in music, improvisation in life. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that, you know, that just made me think a lot. Um, and so I, I do, I think, you know, authentic being requires us to be in that state where we're not thinking too much and we're sort of just being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Improvising uh, is being authentic. And so, uh, when you write, when you reflect, when you study, are you authentic? Because uh, this implies a reflection. Although... That's really hard. I think that I don't always follow my advice. <laughs> <The best. laughs> I mean, I'm a psychologist, right? So I'm constantly helping other, trying to help other people. Mm -hmm. A teacher, right? I'm sure you are too. And, um, you know, but I think it's, sometimes it's tough for us. We We do need to give ourselves time to to be ourselves. And I think sometimes we're so busy that we don't always give ourselves that, um, that space, um, you know. Is there research you did, uh, something you wrote, uh, a talk you gave uh, in which you felt, ah, uh, oh, this is my authentic self. Uh, I feel so much myself in doing this. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting. I think the nature of science is kind of weird because at least the kind of, you know, the, the research I do, it's very, it's, there's not, there's not a whole lot of me in the work. And actually, if you put yourself in the work, then it's considered not, not mm. specific, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Objectivity, yeah. subjectivity piece. Mm -hmm. You know, think of Thomas Kuhn and, you know, his treatment of all that. I enjoy that research, but really I needed to, to balance that with, teaching and I also need to balance that with um, other types of written work. So in the last couple of, you know, last year even, I've done a bunch of commentaries mm -hmm. and that, that's a lot more authentic for me. I mean, for Thomas Kuhn, we were referring to the shift of paradigm of science, I guess. So mm -hmm. how we consider science differently according to the uh, surrounding the development of our culture, of our education. So the meaning of science changes in its systematic way with us changing. And how does this interconnect with your work on commentaries? Why this working on commentaries felt, felt real? 
Well, so it's interesting. I think, I guess in the briefest sort of way that I feel like the scientific work I do tries, you know, in, in a way pretends like it is more objective, right? And I'm encouraged to, to perform in a way that's very objective so that it's taken seriously. Mm-hmm. In a commentary, I get to be more of my authentic self and talk about what's important to me. So, um, for example, when you asked what, it, you know, for an, I think you had, had asked me for an article that represented myself. Exactly. Yeah. You a commentary, right? That I recently did. Um, and it was on how we can confront anti black racism within the biomedical research that I do. Hey, can you tell me a little about that article? I was about to ask you uh, on that article uh, and ask you if uh, you felt uh, authentic uh, in, uh, you know, in expressing your ideas there. Uh, and uh, here you go, you cited it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say um, that in that article, we talk about how, you know, you know, I was talking to you earlier about stress and about how stress um, makes us act in certain ways that um, negatively affect our behavior, right? Um, make us unhealthy in a lot of ways. And I think that it, as a field, we too often are criticizing those people, right? Who are acting in ways that make themselves healthy, unhealthy without understanding the larger system of stress that makes them or, you know, leads them to act unhealthy. And so this commentary talks about that larger system and about what we can do as a field to really reframe some of the, the research we do on um, stress and, and obesity and, and every, you know, and many other topics. So just anti-Black racism in general, because unfortunately, you know, African-Americans tend to be the, uh, to bear the brunt of, of a lot of the, in the United States, right, um, are, you know, political problems, uh, policy issues, you know, nutrition, you name it. And so, so anyway, long, um, in this article, I talked about the fact that when we create, so a lot of what my field does is we create interventions to fix a lot of these or to help people improve their health. But we don't off, often we don't take a step back and look at the larger structure that has caused the you know, the inequalities to exist in the first place. Um, so oftentimes, you know, we'll say, oh, this, um, this person didn't follow the intervention and, you know, it's their fault as a participant because they didn't follow the intervention. Mm-hmm. Really, why didn't they follow the intervention? Maybe you told them to buy fruits and vegetables, but fruits and vegetables aren't available in their neighborhood. Maybe you told them to go um, exercise by running around, you know, running around their neighborhood, but their neighborhood isn't safe. You tell them to go to parks, but there's no parks in their neighborhood. So it's like, you have to really think about the larger structure. Um, you know, and that, that's sort of the, the crux of it. That's beautiful. And behavioral medicine is an area in which you work and is especially focused on that, right? Yeah, so behavioral medicine is about how do you change behaviors or how um, does medicine, does physical health change your behaviors? Um, so yeah, so how do, you, how do you change your behavior to improve your health 
or how does your health affect your behavior? That's mm -hmm. what medicine is involved. Thanks for working on that. Certainly, we we need somebody who thinks about it and uh, improves the quality of life. Uh, oh, just, yeah, well, we're all doing our part. I think. <laughs> right. Look, if I can ask, uh, how is uh, your personal life, you know, the, the big changes in your life influences uh, the, the curiosity, the interests uh, that you develop uh, in life? Uh, do you have freedom to change a target, to go in the direction of your curiosity, to make your life a part of your research? Or uh, is research something that keeps you away from uh, your life? I think that things things have really changed since having uh, a, a baby. And so, you know, before you sort of, um, I think a lot more you live to work. And then after you have a child, I think you work to live a little more <laughs> where you're, you know, thinking about how can whatever I'm doing provide for my child or, you know, you kind of have to change your priorities a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, but that being said, I still really enjoy what I do. And I'm, I'm lucky that I've chosen something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, that is something that I'm excited to, to do when I get up in the morning. And, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, for sure, you can't deny that priorities change when you, you have, mm -hmm. a, you know, when you have a, a child. You're not going to move toward food uh, food expertise in children, for example, <laughs> after? No, I, so strangely enough, like uh -huh. I, yeah, uh, pediatric medicine mm. is not my specialty and I'm okay with that. <laughs> You're not going to get there. All right. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, here is the next question. I see who is the philosopher who inspired you more and why? Well, it depends how you define philosophy. <laughs> right. Um, I know, I mean, we all have a degree in philosophy, right? <laughs> PhD. Yes. Yeah, exactly. PhD. I, I mean, it depends. I think if you're thinking of, you know, just pure, um, you know, philosophy, I guess I was, I always thought Thomas Kuhn was really fascinating in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I brought him up all, already. I think, you know, the, the part of his ideas that I like are, you know, and, and no one's perfect, you know, um, so I, I know there are a lot of criticism as, as well, but I think that there are a few things I like. One is that the idea about revolutions in science and about how, um, particularly the, the, what, the part he talks about how it's usually the outsider that changes the field. You know, you think of Einstein, he was in a patent office. He was just a guy working on, you know, patents. He was just a paper pusher in a government. Mm -hmm. And then he became a, the most famous physicist. Um, and it almost, I feel like it almost had to be an outsider in that respect. So I think that's true about all, all, all so many of our fields. And I think it's really un, uh, underappreciated because we try, especially, I mean, at least in my field, I should say, there's so much pressure to just toe the line and be, to, to just check all the boxes as someone who does, who's a good, you know, researcher in that, in our field. And when, you know, ironically, it's the people who come from out of the field and who challenge our paradigms that are the ones that make history. Thank um, you. And, and, that, and that's true for, you know, across fields, right? 
um, there's always there's that bumper sticker that they say like polite women never make the history you know aren't the ones who make the history books it's I, true, right? I mean <laughs> it, you, you know you it's a great quote you know um, people have to come from have to be different and have to really challenge things and it you know and I think we need to appreciate that as a society does this uh, appreciation have to do with uh, the word diversity that was my next question is it a neutral word for you what uh does it mean diversity i mean i think diversity is it's loaded <laughs> in our culture <laughs> so i don't know it um it's diversity to me sounds a little um it, it sounds a little um like demeaning i think because it mm -hmm. almost sounds like you're going to a buffet and you have like a little bit from each tray at a buffet Mm. You don't even necessarily like each food you just you're doing it because you feel like it's that's what you're supposed to do or I don't know diversity doesn't feel authentic just to go back to what the word we were talking about mm -hmm. I think um you know in some ways it maybe motivates good behavior you know good behavior so I don't want to completely you know demean it because it often it has led to good you know, it's people who create, who, who use it often have good intentions. And so I don't want to undermine that, you know, but, and we do need more representation of women in, you know, CEO, among CEOs, you know, among um, African-Americans and Latinos in academia and every, you know, in positions of power in general. But I guess it's more than just diversity. It's it's a, it's inclusion too, right? And it's uh, representation, and it's not just for the sake of diversity. It's because it matters. Yeah, you're right. Thank you so much. Yeah, equity, also. Thank you, Mike. We are at the end of uh, this interview, and I have just one last question, of course, uh, uh, which is uh, a few words from you about the meaning of life. So what's the meaning of life for you? It's a very easy, simple question. Simple, all right, yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I mean, I am a psychologist at heart. And uh, when I think of meaning of life, I think of Viktor Frankl's really, mm -hmm. um, book that really affected me called Man's Search for Meaning. You know, he's a gentleman who lived through the Nazi death camps and he um, somehow survived you know, uh, unbelievably in, in, through um, the concentration camps during World War II in Nazi Germany. And he uh, is a, was a psychiatrist and uh, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning that talks about what is, you know, what, what, what was the secret sauce, the, the secret element that got the people through Nazi Germany and through um, all the hardships. And he talked about that there are three things that it can be. Um, it can be, um, yeah, your relationship to um, others, you know, some so social. It can be your, so in other words, yeah, so in other words, living to, you know, reunite with your wife or your husband, you know, or your child. Um, you can live for a work of art, like, um, or a work of that you're, you know, a research project or something that you're passionate about that you need to complete that that's your passion. Um, or it could just be like living honorably. 
And um, and I do think about that. I think about those three things when you, when you say meaning of life. Sorry, a very little follow-up question. What do you mean? What do you think he means by living honorably? Well, his example is people sometimes look at, you know, um, Jesus Christ in, in Christianity or, um, you know, Muhammad in um, Islam or, you know, um, the Buddha in Buddhism. And they're, the reason that we um, venerate them is because they like lived or died honorably. So Jesus, right, he died honorably on the cross. Um, he didn't like try to fight people and, you know, like use his power to, you know, he sort of died honorably. And so that that's what Viktor Frankl means when he says live honorably or die honorably. Thank you so much for bringing up Viktor Frankl. I think he's uh, a corner store for uh, this uh, for this podcast. Uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, thank you so much for uh, your willingness to join uh, the podcast and uh, for your interview, Mike. It was um, a pleasure to to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I had a really great time.